We would like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Preborn. When a mother meets her baby on an ultrasound and hears their heartbeat, it's a divine connection. And the majority of the time, she will choose life. But she can't do it without our help. Preborn needs us, the pro-life community, to come alongside her. One ultrasound is just $28. To donate, dial pound 250 and say the keyword baby or visit preborn.com. Jenna Ellis in the morning on American Family Radio. Jenna, first, good morning. Great to be with you, the queen of talk radio in America. The left does not want to honor our freedoms, and we have a responsibility to fight back. I love talking about the things of God because of truth and the biblical worldview. Fill that void with the vision that runs so deep that it dilutes the woke agenda. Well, thank you, Jenna. Right from the beginning, I knew you, so it's an honor to be with you, and you're doing really well. Proud of you. Former legal counsel to President Trump. Ellis. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Jenna Ellis in the morning. No, Jenna does not have a cold. <laughs> she has not been taking any um, untoward medications. <laughs> My name is Abraham Hamilton III. I am filling in for Jenna Ellis this morning. I am the host of the Hamilton Corner, which airs right here on the American Family Radio Network. In the evenings at 5 p.m. Central or 6 p.m. Eastern Time, Uh, while Jenna is out, she has given me the opportunity to fill in for her, which is why I am here. Lord willing, I will be here this morning and tomorrow morning with you, uh, both days on the American Family Radio Network. I'll get to escort you to work and help you get home (laughs) in the evenings. Uh, So this is... What is going on? Thank you so much for tuning in to the American Family Radio Network. It is truly a pleasure and an honor to be with you for this hour. It is uh, my custom on the Hamilton Corner to begin each program uh, by turning to the Word of God. And I think it's it's uh, even more appropriate to, to do that this morning uh, just to uh, invite you uh, as, as well as myself to, to line ourselves according to the Lord's word, to frame our mindsets according to the Lord's word as we begin our workdays. Many of us, not I'm sure I know not everybody is beginning their workdays now. Some people may very well be ending their workdays. But uh, for the most part, many of you who are tuning in to, at this moment, you are beginning your days. And so let us begin. First Timothy chapter 4 is where I'd like to turn our attention. First Timothy chapter 4 verses uh, 6 through Six and seven. Actually, six through eight. We'll go six through eight. Um, For some of you who don't know, many of you already know this. Some of you may not be aware of it. uh, But Paul's epistle to Timothy was written in about the mid-60s A.D. Now, that is um, important for a host of reasons. Um, The family of God in the first century faced an appreciable uptick in persecution uh, right at about the mid-60s A.D., uh, including the time period where we learn from uh, church historians like Eusebius and others uh, that the Apostle Paul and, and the Apostle Peter, by the way, were both executed under Nero in 68 A.D. And so when we peer into Paul's epistle to Timothy, it is um, one that is written toward the latter part of the Apostle Paul's life. Now, that is significant for a host of reasons. 
but I'll explain that to you this way. I'll never forget uh, growing up in my home church. Some of you know this. I, I'm born. I was born and raised in New Orleans, Louisiana, and we had a brother who was an elder in in our church uh, there where I grew up, and he was over the bereavement ministry. He had suffered uh, the loss of his own son at a at a young age, his son at a young age. And so he was, um, the Lord had given him a gift in compassion. And he would often say the parting message reveals truth. And what he meant by that was that when people uh, are approaching the end of their lives, uh, they tend to offer some of the most salient, provocative, and truthful statements that they ever offer. And, and it's, it's amazing phenomenon. In addition to hosting the Hamilton Corner, I'm also an attorney. I serve as general counsel for the American Family Association. Uh, prior to coming to the American Family Association, I was a criminal prosecutor uh, for over a decade. And it's interesting uh, because the salient notion of statements made near the end of a person's life are, is even reflected and accepted in our criminal justice system. And let me explain what I'm talking about. Many of you have heard the term hearsay, but I don't know if many people understand what that actually means. The term hearsay is actually a legal term. Hearsay is a statement that is rendered outside of court, but it is subsequently offered or attempted to be offered in court to prove the truth of a matter asserted during a legal proceeding. Let me give you an example. Bubba did it. (laughs) If there's a, like, say, a homicide investigation and Bubba is accused of the homicide and someone said Bubba did it outside of court, uh, that statement made outside of court would be textbook hearsay if an attorney attempted to offer it in court for proof of the assertion that Bubba is in fact guilty for the homicide. The law requires if you have a statement maker or a declarant who would offer a statement, well, you can't just say that statement outside of court. You need to come into the court, into the legal proceedings, submit yourself to an oath or an affirmation to tell the truth before a judge before a jury and stated in the court. If you said it out there, you should be able to say it in here. That's the general notion. Well, the legal system systematically excludes hearsay statements for that very reason. We don't want you to just say something outside of the parameters of the legal proceedings, unbounded by an oath or affirmation to tell the truth with the potential risk of perjury should you um, have an allergy for veracity. (laughs) Uh, But say it in court. So there's a general prohibition on hearsay, which means it's, it's usually excluded from admissibility in a court of law. Well, there are a number of exceptions to the hearsay exclusionary rule. One of those exceptions is called a dying declaration. So a dying declaration, what is it? A dying declaration is a hearsay statement. Remember, an out-of-court statement offered in court to prove the truth of the matter asserted. But the statement is made as the declarant is under the imminent perception that they are about to expire. Now, why do you think the American legal system allows dying declarations to be admissible in court as an exception to the hearsay exclusionary rule? It is because our founders embraced the notion that people on their way out are less likely to lie. Why do you think they came to that conclusion? Because our founders understood, not everybody, but the overarching worldview that undergirded our founding fathers 
was that they understood it's appointed unto, unto man once to die and then the judgment. People who are facing the imminent pers- potentiality of judgment probably less likely to lie. So if somebody thinks they're about to die, we probably can embrace the fact that they're being as truthful as possible. This is called a dying declaration. Now, I say all of that to explain the significance of Paul's epistle to Timothy because Paul was incarcerated, facing imminent execution, albeit uncertain as to the date of it being carried out. But he's articulating things on his way out that it is important for Timothy, a man who he met as a young man, who he helped to disciple. And now Timothy at this juncture is an elder in the church at Ephesus. And Paul is conveying to Timothy some things that he considers to be vitally important for Timothy to know before he's out of here. Is everybody with me? All right. So you literally have, especially in 2 Timothy, because it's even later than 1 Timothy, but in Paul's epistles to Timothy, you have examples of what could be described as literary dying declarations. All right. And Paul's other writings has carried about by the Spirit of God are truthful as well. But I want you to understand the frame of what's going on here. So 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 8. Paul has said several things prior to this moment. This is a transition point in his, in his epistle. But he says this, verse 6. If you put these things before the brethren, or some translations say, if you put the brethren in remembrance of these things, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, Godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Oh, praise God for his word. Now, here you have the Apostle Paul when he says, if you put these things before the brethren or you put them in remembrance of these things. So when he says that, he's talking about everything that he'd articulated in the first three chapters up to chapter four, all the way through chapter four, verse five. All right. But he's encouraging Timothy to remind the body of Christ of these doctrinal instructions from which we get the first communication that repeating the sound doctrine of Jesus Christ is of great value. We need to understand that the Christian faith that we have is an intelligent faith, but it is also the faith, as the Apostle Jude explains, the faith that has been once and for all handed down to us, his saints. Believers should not be inclined to have this hankering to always want to hear something new. I got to get something new. Got to get something new. Got to get something new. Because you cannot upgrade (laughs) on a faith that is millennia years old. In fact, you should be cautious when you have someone attempting to present you with, oh, now this is new. Actually, there is a faith that has been once and for all handed down to the saints. Now, there is a human tendency. You know, we got to get the freshest, latest, and newest. And I understand that in a general sense. But when it comes to the eternal word of God, as the scripture says, that is forever settled in the heavens, we should be cautious. The scripture, the same apostle Paul in the same epistle explains that in the latter days, Men will have itching ears. (laughs) And they would pursue 
teachers who are false teachers who would tell them not what the sound doctrine of Christ requires, but would tell them what they want to hear. And so lots of people talk about the phenomenon of false teachers, but often we ignore the fact that the prevalence of false teachers, biblically speaking, is actually the byproduct of carnal people who no longer will withstand sound doctrine, but they want to hear what they want to hear. We should be cautious about that. The next thing I want to point out to you. Oh, man, this is so profound. Paul, by the Spirit of God, instructs Timothy, have nothing to do with irreverent silliness. Rather, train yourself for godliness. He's contrasting. Having a penchant for, for, for silly fables and myths with the necessity of training oneself for godliness. This is a reality that the Spirit of God has communicated to, through Paul that the believer has the opportunity to agree with God in our sanctification to where we say, yes, Lord, thank you for regenerating us by your spirit. And in light of being regenerated, now we will exercise ourselves toward godliness. What is being communicated to us is that godliness is not something that is automatic. You don't, you don't automatically walk in an upright manner. We don't automatically follow the Lord in holiness and be and become lovers of truth filled with compassion filled with truth embraces of grace embraces that's not automatic we must train ourselves for godliness I often describe uh, those poignant moments of witness as showing up moments and and one of the most profound, not the most, but a profound showing up moment in Scripture is when Daniel and his friends, Daniel, Azariah, Hananiah, and Mishael. I know some of you are saying, who? <laughs> These are their Hebrew names. Most people refer to them as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Those were the Babylonian slave names for Daniel's friends. Because if you're going to call them Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you probably should call Daniel Belteshazzar. <laughs> but Daniel, Azariah, Hananiah, and Mishael, when they're standing before... Nebuchadnezzar in his statue. And Nebuchadnezzar says, I heard you won't bow, but won't you buy and bow now? They were able to respond, we're not careful to answer you concerning this matter. No, we're not going to bow to you in your statue. Because the God that we serve is well able to deliver us from you and your furnace. And even if we will not bow, if we want to understand how they're able to do that so readily, then you have to go all the way back to the 10-day table of testing. The simple reality is this. If we want to be able to stand in the public showing up moments, we must have ourselves trained for the private showing up moments. Training ourselves for godliness requires us to be godly in the anonymous showing up moments when nobody else is around. When we're living before the audience of one, when we show up in the private and anonymous showing up moments, we will be trained and ready for the public showing up moments. As you set your course for work today, set your course to train yourself for godliness. Leisha had found herself in an unplanned pregnancy and wasn't sure what to do. She searched for pregnancy services and found a preborn network clinic where she was counseled, supported, and offered a free ultrasound. After seeing her baby and hearing the heartbeat, she cried. She was certain she would keep her baby forever. Leisha gave birth to a baby girl who is smart, beautiful, and full of life. Often, she visits that same clinic and receives free clothes, diapers, and more. 
Because of your generous support, Preborn writes 200 stories just like these every day. $28 can be the difference between the life and death of a child. When a mother meets her baby on ultrasound and hears their heartbeat, it's a divine connection and doubles a baby's chance at life. Let's join together and help mothers in crisis choose life. Just dial pound 250 and say the keyword baby. That's pound 250 baby. Or visit preborn.com. That's preborn.com. All gifts are tax deductible and 100% of your donation goes towards saving babies. Welcome back to Jenna Ellis in the Morning on American Family Radio. Welcome back. Abraham Hamilton III in for Jenna Ellis this morning. I wanted to mention to you, I know we have uh, lots of listeners in the Louisiana area. Um, if you are in Louisiana or willing to come to Louisiana, I will be joining my my brother in the faith and a mentor, really, and a friend, uh, president of the Louisiana Family Forum, Gene Mills. I'll be joining him for the Louisiana Family Forum Silver Anniversary Gala. It'll be this Thursday evening at 6 p.m. at the Healing Place Church in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. The address there is 19202. Highland Road. Uh, I will be there joining Gene Mills as well as uh, Family Research Council President Tony Perkins uh, as we celebrate the Louisiana Family Forum's silver anniversary. You can attend this event. You just simply have to go to lafamilyforum.org to register for it. It is lafamilyforum.org to register for it. And it is going to be an amazing time there in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, this Thursday evening. All right, a couple items that I want to bring to your attention. Uh, First, some of you may be aware of this already, uh, but the second uh, GOP presidential primary is going to be this Wednesday. Uh, This Wednesday evening at 8 p.m. Central is when it begins, or 9 p.m. Eastern time. Uh, The debate will take place in Simi Valley, California, at the Reagan Presidential Library, all right, this Wednesday evening. It will be moderated, this is always interesting to me, it will be moderated by Dana Perino, uh, Fox News anchor, uh, Fox Business anchor, Stuart Varney, as well as Ilya Calderon from Univision. Yes, you should see Adam's reaction. What? Yes, I'll do it again. Ilya Calderon from Univision, or if you were at the Univision. <laughs> it always, I won't go too far into that because the contrast between that and what I'm about to say is just, it's just interesting. But it always strikes me when the uh, Republican moderators uh, include like a, an Univision television host or Telemundo, you know, um, it, it, it's interesting. It, it's just it's always interesting to me. So that'll be this Wednesday uh, at 8 p.m. Central or 9 p.m. Eastern time. So those of you who are interested or want want to tune in, I think it's a great exercise uh, to, just to find out from the horse's mouth, so to speak, where they stand on these issues. Uh, I do plan to uh, tackle some of these things on Hamilton Corner as well, and I'm pretty sure. Uh, that Jenna will address uh, the fallout from the second GOP presidential primary debate. All right. 
over the weekend, a couple things transpired that I want to bring to your attention, which is, uh, I think, appropriate, especially in light of this uh, with the presidential primary season that we're in. Uh, but more importantly, really what, what's unfolding in our nation. So Representative Tony Gonzalez, Tony Gonzalez, Tony Gonzalez, Representative Tony Gonzalez uh, was interviewed on CBS's Face the Nation this Sunday, and, and he brought to the fore of the conversation the fact that the current Oval Office occupant, Mr. Joseph Robinette Biden, who I unaffectionately refer to as Mr. Ice Cream Man, um, that's, you know, he, he likes ice cream, you know. In one press conference, he said, I wouldn't have come down here if they didn't tell me they had ice cream. He's like, really? All the matters of state, all the affairs of the world, and but you wouldn't have come if they didn't tell you they had that rocky road. You didn't get that mint chocolate chip. You wouldn't have been willing to just come come to shuffle on downstairs, you know. And it's <laughs> I'm I'm gonna try to be cool. I'm gonna try to be cool, but it's just it's just remarkable to me that we have a Washington D.C. teeming with reporters, right? And we have Mr. Robinette, who is clearly diminished. I mean, if you've seen any of his speeches from his time as being a United States senator, even from his time as serving as vice president, compared to where he is now, he's clearly diminished. I mean, he, he couldn't he didn't even know where to stand. You know, the East, the Easter bunny, the Ishtar bunny had to move him physically. You know, everybody's telling him where to go, move around. I mean, it's it's obvious. And then you have former President Barack Hussein Obama, who in one of the few times in America's history, a former president, talking about Mr. Obama, leaves the White House but buys a mansion five miles down the street from 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue and has been there. And then we also have audio video footage from as recently as 2020 when he's asked, would you like to have a third term? And his response is, well, I, I, I've often said if I could be in my basement in my sweats with an earpiece in and I could, and you know, he had his left hand, I could give the line. I could give the line. But have a front man deliver it? I'll go for that. Dude literally said this in 2020. Yet he moves five miles down the road in Colorado from the White House. The current occupant is clearly diminished. Mr. Robinette's entire administration is filled with Obama administration personnel. Yet not one reporter that I can recall has had anything to say. I wonder what's going on at the Obama mansion. Who goes there? Who leaves there? How late do they stay? Where are they? What are they talking about? Look at all those black SUVs that just happen to be parked outside. There is no one curious as to whether or not <laughs> he's involved at all with the current goings on at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. Or is it that they already know the answer to the question? And it's an open secret that nobody's willing to discuss. You know, kind of like one of his ex-girlfriends having a letter from him where he fantasizes almost daily. This is what he says about, let's just say it this way, because I don't, you know, some children may be in the car going to school. 
but almost daily about being close to men. Nobody wanted to talk about that either. Anyway, I digress. I digress. Tony Gonzalez, that's what I was talking about. Mr. Robinette made a decision in light of the current, it only can be described as an immigration crisis, but I think crisis even, is even a word that, that, that is uh, too soft. He made the decision to grant extended temporary protection status for 500,000 Venezuelan migrants, allowing them a legal capacity to work and, and uh, function in our country. And that is being represented as, as if it is a measure to stem the tide of illegal, illegal immigration in our country. How? How? You come, you break our laws, we will grant you protected status so that you can function legally? And that is supposed to be a, a mechanism employed to reduce illegal immigration? How? Listen to Representative Gonzalez. It's clip number one. Right now, Border Patrol agents are showing up to operate in processing centers. They're not out in the field, so they're not really doing their jobs, and they haven't been doing their jobs. And many, many agents have told me, you know what, Tony? Uh, right now, I mean, give you an example in El Paso, the, the facility, 200 Border Patrol agents are in that soft-sided facility uh, taking care of migrants, meaning they're not out in the field protecting America from bad actors. So in many cases, they, they might as well already be shut down. Border Patrol agents processing illegal aliens. Is that what what their job is supposed to be? Not really. Similarly, newly appointed U.S. Border Patrol Chief Jason Owens had some interesting things to say. Um, And and I find it interesting that all of these stories are starting to come out now. (laughs) ABC News interviews U.S. Border Patrol Chief Jason Owens. And he had some interesting things to say, among which he identifies, well, one of the things that's happening is that the cartels are running the show. And they're using illegal illegal immigration to really give cover for their efforts to smuggle narcotics, bulk cash, weapons, and other things into our nation. And it's happening unimpeded, and this is unsustainable. Listen to... Uh, Jason Owens, it's clip number two. Go in terms of flow and, and the threats that we're seeing uh, with fentanyl and with the uh, criminal organizations that, uh, that are our adversary, it's about as bad as I've ever seen it. The last week has been intense, to say the least. Thousands crossing per day in the latest spike in migration. We haven't seen these numbers since the end of Title 42, the pandemic-era policy that allowed officials to quickly expel most migrants at the border without allowing asylum claims. How sustainable is this, your ability to respond to this amount of people at the border? This isn't sustainable. This is uh, up and down the system. uh, Everybody is overwhelmed, even the government of Mexico, which have been great partners for us. The U.S. Border Patrol, a lot of times our facilities are already over capacity. Nowhere more overwhelmed than the small town of Eagle Pass, Texas, where thousands of migrants converged and crossed over the last week. Behind that, in part, organized crime. Officials say human smugglers surged migrants to that area for a reason. Now, we are talking about thousands per day. Uh, Recently, New York City Mayor Eric Adams. Illegal migration is going to destroy New York. 
That's what he said. But it's amazing that he and others were willing to mock mayors and governors in small towns along our border in Arizona and New Mexico and Texas. But now they have something to say. Border Patrol Chief Jason Owens continues. Listen to him, this short clip, clip number three. So you believe what's happening in Eagle Pass is directly a distraction to occupy your time instead of looking at something else? I believe it's a money-making opportunity for those smugglers, and I believe it's a distraction for them to cross other things into the country. Other things like? Narcotics, fentanyl, uh, bulk cash, weapons, people of interest, whether it be hardened criminals, gang members, convicted sexual predators. We have documents showing that um, in the last month, 81,000 people crossed the border from Colombia into Panama, joining caravans of illegal migrants, moving upward from Panama through Mexico to come to the United States of America. To say that this is unsustainable is the understatement of the year. You are, we are literally talking about, and, and, and the numbers that are being reported officially, that just under the Robinette administration, you're talking about seven, seven and eight million people in less than four years. To put context on that, the population of the entire state of Louisiana is right at about four million people, a little bit under four million people. The entire state in, of Mississippi is about three million people. You are talking about states, entire states worth of illegal aliens entering our country in short order. To describe the border crisis as a crisis is to misunderstand what's really going on. And I want to explain what I mean. What is happening on our southern border is nothing more than the cloudward Piven strategy being applied to the context of migration. What am I talking about? What is the Cloward Piven strategy? The Cloward Piven strategy came from two people, Richard Cloward and his wife, Francis Fox Piven. These two were a husband and wife duo who were professors at Columbia University. And Francis, uh, Richard Cloward passed away before his wife, but they were both left-wing regressive activists. In 1966, they published an article in The Nation magazine titled, quote, The Weight of the Poor, A Strategy to End Poverty. All right. Columbia University is in New York City. In their article, Richard Cloward and Francis Fox Piven advocated for the complete destruction of the capitalist economic system in New York City in favor of a Marxist revision. All right. Including, now this is 1966, including a government-provided, guaranteed annual basic income. Have you heard that before? This is all the way in 1966. What was their strategy? Their strategy was to enroll, intentionally enroll, increasing numbers of people for New York City welfare benefits. All right? They wanted to enroll more people then the city could afford to place on their welfare rolls intentionally. Their objective was to force New York City into bankruptcy and to collapse the city's economic system. 
so that once it's decimated, they could then impose their favorite version of a Marxist economic strategy. Now, I want you to understand something. I want you to notice something. Their objective was never for the people that they're signing up for these welfare benefits to ever get any of the benefits that they were enrolling for. That was not their objective. Their goal was to cause the poor to become a weight on the system, hence the title of their article, The Weight of the Poor. The purpose was to enroll more people than could ever be sustained by New York City's welfare systems to force it into collapse. This consistent infusion of millions of illegal immigrants into our country, overwhelming our welfare systems, is an intentional phenomenon to force our nation into a form of collapse. Because these people adhere to a Sololinskyist, <laughs> Antonio Gramscian, Marxism, where they recognize there's no way to have their Marxist utopia unless they collapse the existing framework. This invasion through our southern border is a cloud piven strategy applied to immigration. There is an intentional objective that's unstated, but nevertheless, their actions show what the objective is to overrun our country so that they can collapse it and reform it in their own regressive left-wing Marxist orientation. That is what's happening on our southern border. Welcome back to Jenna Ellis in the Morning on American Family Radio. Welcome back to Jenna Ellis in the Morning. Abraham Hamilton III filling in for Jenna this morning. We will open the phone lines this segment. If you'd like to join the program, you're welcome to do so. The number to call is 888-589-8840. That number again is 888-589-8840. Anything we've discussed this morning is on the table for conversation. And if you want to talk to me, I'd like to talk to you. Now, I was explaining this Cloward Piven strategy uh, because this is something, this is one of those tactics that is well known and well understood and well regarded in regressive circles. But it's one of those things where they really don't want to tell the quiet parts out loud. You know, all, all along, you hear people say, oh, we're, 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 we're trying to manage the immigration crisis, we're trying to manage it. And, and Kamala Harris, one day she's going to visit the southern border, you know. Uh, uh, and you have all of these things happening. And, and now, you know, you have blue state governors that are being impacted by it. And, and blue state mayors, and so they're starting to complain about it. But they're acting as if there is nothing that can be done to stem the tide of illegal immigration. You know, it, 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 it just boggles my mind uh, how in, in former President Trump's administration, how we basically put our... Put a, put a great grip on curtailing illegal, illegal immigration. It, it made me laugh out loud over and over and over again. A number of people said, walls don't work. And many of these same people live in gated communities. <laughs> but like, if walls don't work, why do you live where you live? Why, why don't you just live on a block with no walls around your community? You know, it's, it's hilarious to me. And I'm saying, all these people are saying walls don't work. Okay, well, I want you to take every door and every window and every lock that you have on your home, won't you remove them if they don't work? It, it's just absurd. So when, when you take an objective <laughs> look at what is happening, you cannot conclude that what is happening 
It's accidental. <laughs> you cannot. Thousands per day. Every day. Granting protected status will not reduce the amount of people attempting to get into the country. It will increase it. It will incentivize it. When word begins to spread that, oh, the American Oval Office occupant is extending protected status. Do you think that's going to cause the coyote to have more or less business of people saying, hey, I want to go to Estados Unidos too. Like this is, this, it's just, it's just crazy. And so when you look, and, and, and this is something I learned a long time ago. When people tell you what their intentions are verbally, your assessment of their intention should not end based on what is said. What is said must be put up against <laughs> what is done. And when what is said is contradicted by what is done, which one do you think is telling the truth? What is said or about what is done? I call that speech and feet, the speech and feet phenomenon. When the speech and the feet contradict one another, which one do you think is telling the truth? <laughs> Usually, it's the feet. So when you recognize that, there is no choice other than to conclude, man, they must want this to happen. Then you have to start asking the questions. Why? To the phone lines, we'll go. We'll go. We'll start in Missouri where Lisa is on the line. Lisa, thank you for calling the Hamilton Corner. Welcome to the program. Hello. Thank you. Good morning. Welcome. Good morning. Go right ahead, Lisa. Yes, sir. I just totally agree with what you're saying about what they're trying to do. It's, it's just so obvious. Um, and as a Christian, I realize that God has a plan, and I know the only way we can do anything about any of these issues is we've got to get the gospel out to a lost and dying world mm. because it's about changing people's hearts. Amen. Very well said, Lisa. Very, very well said. We'll go next to Texas where Jerry is on the line. Jerry, thank you for calling the Hamilton Corner. Welcome to the program. Hey, brother, I just want to point it out. I was listening to your Hamilton Corner Minute prior to that. You were talking about the church and God building the church and the city on the hill. It's kind of the same thing. These Marxists and socialists, two different groups, they just want to tear things down. They make it sound so eloquent to lift up the poor and to, to do this. But when you actually get into an understanding of what it is, it's really just the old devil himself. Kill, mm. steal, and destroy, mm. right? I think Marx, is, Marx at the time when he wrote said his greatest enemy, I think, was Charles Spurgeon. Yes. Uh, that he despised because of what he preached. But I'll let you go, brother. No, very well said. And, and to see that how both uh, Spurgeon and, and Moses Mordecai, Marx Levy, that's his real name. That's his full name. Um, uh, kind of were coming up about the same time, same times when Marx ultimately uh, nestled in, in England. Um, but it is true. It is true. Uh, we'll stay in Texas and uh, we'll go to John, who is in Texas. John, thank you for calling Jenna Ellis in the morning. Go right ahead. Good morning, sir. I love listening to AFR in the morning on my drive to work. I just wanted to, to kind of give the message out that I'm not hearing enough of from conservatives that we've got to be able to band together. No matter who gets the nomination, 
for the conservative movement. We have to band together or we're going to lose our country. Thank you, John, for, for your call and your comments. And, and you're right. And, and it's hard for people to hear that, you know, in a presidential primary season. Uh, but and that's part of the reason why you may not be hearing it as much as you, you want to hear, because people are are talking more about, you know, their preferred approach, their preferred preferred candidate, things of that nature. But 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 you are right. Um, you are right in the sense that uh, those who share a common world view, if they remain frayed, there's no way they'll have the type of impact uh, that many desire to have. So thank you for your call uh, and and your your comments. We'll go next to Mississippi where Monica is on the line. Monica, thank you for calling. Jenna Ellis in the morning. Good morning. Good morning. I tried to call you the other day on your show um, to say that um, this um, Larry Sinclair that uh, they talked about with Obama, Uh the Tea Party had known about that since about 2009. Oh, yeah. Um, There was a Reverend James Manning that had put out some videos about that. Mm. And so Mm. when everybody acted like that was new news, you're like, no, we knew that before, you know, after he was elected. So, yeah. Yeah. Monica, thank you for your call and your comments. And I'm sorry I said welcome to the the Hamilton corner because that's what I'm used to saying. Uh, But I'm on Jenna Ellis in the morning right now. Uh, But not Monica, you're absolutely right. And, And the thing that I was pointing out was that this is not new information. The information was available then. But my point was, why wasn't it covered broadly? Why wasn't it covered massively? Why wasn't it widespread? Why was it only a small segment of people like Tea Partiers or, you know, as I shared, myself and others who, who talked about this information, but not very many other, many people, many others knew about it. I know like in the 2020 election, I covered on my program, and I know we covered extensively on AFR, the reality of what was going on with Hunter Biden's laptop. But most Americans never heard of it. There were many people who said who were Democrat voters who voted for Mr. Biden, who said had they known about Hunter Biden's laptop prior to the election in 2020, they would not have voted for Mr. Biden. So why didn't they know about it? Because it was a concerted effort to keep the information concealed. That is the reality. We'll go next to Tennessee, to where Joe is on the line. Joe, thank you for calling Jenna Ellis in the morning. Abe. Brother, I love you. I love you. I listen to you every single day. I've got a question. Yes. Why are we required to pay for illegal education? My children, my wife, they are school teachers, and they talk about the illegals coming in and can't speak one lick of English. And why do we have to educate them? And if there's some reason we do, is it something that could be challenged? Joe, thank you for your calling and comments. So first, yes, it could be challenged. So what's happening is, as I described earlier, uh, the Cloward-Piven strategy, it's a perversion of our welfare system's policies that says, well, people get here, we have to take care of them according to current policies. Absolutely, it can be challenged. There are other uh, constitutional metrics, but what's happening invariably is that they're not being challenged, and e- the opposite is even happening, that when states and local municipalities attempt to do anything, the federal government actually persecutes the states. <laughs> like, it, it, it's a complete inversion, which is why I'm saying what's happening is not a coincidence. It's actually intentional, what we see happening. 
We'll go next to North Carolina, where David is on the line. David, thank you for calling the Hamilton Corner. Calling Jenna Ellis yeah, in the Hamilton. morning. I'm not on a Hamilton yeah, Corner. Yeah, Jenna. Goodness gracious. It's nice to talk to you, Jenna. Your voice sounds funny. Well, you know, I had a, had a, had a, I'm just kidding. No, this is, no, I'm yeah, sitting I'm in for Jenna. Go right ahead, David. <laughs> no, the question I've got, we're always going after O'Biden and exposing him as the villain behind these um, open borders. But why don't we go after the real cause and start bringing up these names of these people like Ocasio-Cortez and the squad and Barney Sanders and people like that that are behind us and spearheading it? Why don't we start going to their homes and exposing them for who they are and what they're doing? David, thank you for your call and your comments. I don't know about going to their homes. (laughs) I don't don't think that is the way to go about this. The the major reason why... Biden is mentioned because the, the federal government's executive branch is tasked with enforcing our laws. And what's happening is that the executive branch is intentionally not enforcing our laws. It's not as if we need new laws. We don't need new laws. We need the federal government to enforce existing laws. Now, I do think it is important to expose the policy agenda and the subversive efforts of Alexandria Occasional Cortex and <laughs> and others who are um, subversive on the home front. But the reason why the IRS is placed on the federal government is because they alone are tasked with enforcing existing law. We don't have to have new laws. We need to enforce the laws that currently exist. And, I mean, I'll give you a perfect example. During the, the Trump years, there were not only budgetary allocations made, there were supplies that were purchased to build the border wall in the various portions where it's where where it was being built. Well, it was the Obama Biden administration, the Biden administration, but really who was really behind the scenes, who made the decision not only to not build the wall, but to sell off all of the materials for pennies on the dollar, causing our, our the taxpayers really to lose money and to create the phenomenon. That if anybody wanted to ever try to build a border wall going forward, they would have to start from scratch because they won't be able to use the materials that were secured under the Trump administration. All of that was done by the executive branch of the federal government, by the Biden administration. And that, that's why that they get the focus of detention on that particular issue. But there are tons of other issues uh, that require diversifying the attention. So probably our last call for the morning. We'll go next to Georgia where Jeff is on the line. Jeff, thank you for calling Jenna Ellis in the morning. Uh, Abraham Hamilton here sitting in for Jenna. Hey, good morning, Brother Abraham. How are you this morning? Thank uh, you for I'm taking doing, my call. I'm doing well. Jeff, go right ahead. Hey, brother. So uh, I had an epiphany a while back, and uh, I've decided that I could figure out what the term woke means in a single word. So I can define woke in a single word, saying that woke equals Satan. And uh, I'd like to get your uh, thoughts on that, and I'll hang up and listen. And thanks again, brother, and you have a blessed day. Thank you. That, that, that is an interesting notion because I, I know what people mean when they say woke. I, I honestly think saying woke, this is my, my, my view about it, I, I think is really um, kind of lazy in determining what needs to be con- contested again. I, I think it's more effective to identify the ideologies instead of and identifying the things that are problematic within the ideologies instead of just lumping everything together with a notion as woke. And the other thing I would say is that I think it's important 
that when we point out things that are evil, that we don't try to reduce them to something other than being evil, but to show that this is evil. For example, categorizing and classifying people based on superficial external characteristics like skin color is wicked. I thought that's what we were trying to get away from. But it seems like, no, we don't want to get away from it. We want to return right to it, which brings to mind the reality of Proverbs 28, verse 5. Proverbs 28, 5 says, evil men cannot understand justice. Evil men cannot understand justice. In order for people that are, you know, that are agnostics, that are atheists, in order to assert any notion concerning justice, they have to borrow from a biblical worldview to assert that terminology. All right? Attempts at justice, void of the cross, will rapidly descend into the pursuit of vengeance. What we have happening on a large scale is people who are using historical occurrences that are not being repeated today as a means to assert in a humanistic form of vengeance. It's happening with uh, censoring ideas. It's happening with censoring thought. It's happening with with efforts to, they call it equity, but in reality it is institutionalizing a lack of equity. And what is happening is that entitlement is being weaponized. I think we need to call Bible things by Bible names so that we can connect them to the only true source, which is liberty in Christ Jesus. You have been listening to Jenna Ellis in the morning, Abraham Hamilton III filling in for her, and Lord willing, I'll be back tomorrow. And hopefully when we get to calls, I can say thank you for calling Jenna Ellis in the morning. Y'all have a great morning. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast may not necessarily reflect those of the American Family Association or American Family Radio.